Uh, this time of year, I am uh, generally flooded with requests by uh, last-minute journalists, Catholic and Muslim schools, and the occasional wayward soul asking me to explain what these days mean, and what it is they ask and wonder to me. And what it is they ask in, in wonder, what is it that makes Jews who otherwise would seldom attend a synagogue, Jews who practically do not call themselves religious, Jews who have little inclination or perhaps difficulty in the regular prayers and the order of the service, what makes them come to synagogue on these days? And so I have two answers a long one and a short one, and originally I thought I'd ask you which one you wanted, but then I realized that might end us leave, leaving us with a very short sermon. So I decided I'm going to give both. So here's the short one. An older couple was having dinner with friends when the both wives get up and go to the kitchen. The two husbands are left at the dining room table, and one of them mentions that they had just been at a great restaurant. What's the name of it? His friend asks him. And he says, you know what, I'm blanking here, help me out. What's the name of that red flower? And his friend says, a poppy? He goes, no, 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 the other one. He says, a tulip? He goes, no, 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 the, you know, not that one, the one with the thorns on it, or rose. And he says, thanks, the husband says. He then turns to the kitchen and says, Rose, what's the name of the restaurant we ate at last week? Which is saying that these days are an echo of what the philosopher Gide said over a century ago, that we say the same truths over and over again because people forget them, which is to say that you come here not because you are surprised by what you're going to hear, you come here to hear these truths spoken again. And Jewish tradition deeply understands that we need to hear things repeated. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, we find that Adam is overcome by guilt and fear, and he runs deep into the garden. And at that moment, he hears the sound of God moving through the garden, and he hides behind the tree. And God calls out to him, we are told, saying, Ayeka, where are you? And the Holocaust survivor and writer Elie Wiesel said that this actually was the first and is the only question ever asked repeated every moment of your life. It asks, what are you and who are you? Ayeka, where are you? Our lives are fashioned by two realities. There is a world inside of us and a world outside of us. And these two worlds shape the person you are. And it is in these two words that we will find the answer to our question. But I have to tell you that I was reluctant in fact, very 
to share these thoughts that I'm about to give to you this morning, I said to myself as I sat down to write them, it can't be that I am talking about this. But I realized that God's question to Adam must be answered. Ayeka, where are we? Now we know that Jews have been living in North America since the 17th century. Dutch Jews came from Amsterdam and they settled in a place called New Amsterdam, which is now New York. Until eight months ago, the last firearm attack in the synagogue was in 1966. The only victim was the synagogue rabbi, Morris Adler, a blessed memory, during Shabbat morning services. The perpetrator was a young man whose family were longtime members of the congregation. This man was unwell, suffering from psychosis. And when he stood up and he waved the pistol at the rabbi, congregants went to rush the young man. But Rabbi Adler, who had been counseling him, told everyone to sit down and be calm. There was nothing to fear, the rabbi said. And a moment later, he was shot dead. That was in 1966. In less than eight months, we have now seen three. The first occurred in Pittsburgh. The second in Poway, California. And the third, you probably don't even remember. It was in Miami Beach in July. I'd like to say, we would all like to say that these are aberrations. One-off events by a few crazies, but overall, our life insecurity is the same as it's always been. We'd like to say that we are safe and we'd like to say that things are fine. But this morning, you and I walked into shul past a parked police cruiser. They don't have those in front of churches or mosques, my friend. One of the most important moments in the history of anti-Semitism takes place in the late 1800s in France. There in Paris, a Jewish Viennese reporter named Theodor Herzl is sent to cover the trial of a Jewish French army officer named Alfred Dreyfus, who was accused and later acquitted of selling military intelligence to the Germans. And Herzl is standing outside the courthouse and he finds crowds of French people screaming, death to the Jews. And he wonders to himself, what does this have to do with the Jews? Not just the Jews of Paris or the Jews of France, but all the Jews. The truth is, only Alfred Dreyfus was on trial. And what Herzl saw and believed was that this was not some bump in the road, that it wasn't just about the Jews of Paris or France, but Herzl believed that this was about the fate of all the Jews in Europe. Sure, hindsight was 2020, But what Herzl believed was opposite to what everyone else was thinking at the time. Because the conventional wisdom said that Eastern Europe was the prison and threat to the Jews, that it was there in Russia and Poland where there was legalized persecution of Jews. That in Russia and Poland, there were places where Jews were not allowed to live or work or study or socialize. It was there in Russia and Poland and Eastern Europe that Jews were legalized second-class citizens. But in Western Europe, there was emancipation and France was ground zero of the liberal emancipation and democracy in the world. It was there that Jews were free to work and live and marry and worship as they wished. And people prayed at that time that the emancipation in Western Europe would spread eastward to Russia and Poland. But at that moment, Herzl came to see something that no one else saw. 
and that's why we remember him. Herzl understood that you can't legislate yourself out of anti-Semitism. Yes, you can make it illegal to discriminate against Jews, but you cannot make hatred illegal. You can't outlaw laws preventing Jews from eating in certain restaurants, from being members in certain clubs. You can outlaw laws preventing Jews, as they did in Miami until the 1960s, from being guests in certain hotels, but you cannot stop the club members or the hotel owners from hating Jews. Now, for more than two generations, we widely, if even a little bit suspiciously, believed that anti-Semitism was an anachronism, that it was a remnant, some stupid and outdated vestigial behavior that good and smart and developed people in countries didn't succumb to any longer. But the German-Jewish writer Bertolt Brecht was prophetic when after the Second World War, as people were soaking in the defeat of this longest hatred, he warned, saying, do not rejoice in this defeat. Though the world has stood up and stopped this bastard, the dog that bore him will be in heat again. Again. Now, we live in a wonderful country. A country that is blessed with tolerances and freedoms and the rule of law. But the forces that I speak of and that we fear are greater than Canadian culture. And they are more powerful than Canadian courts and Canadian laws. Herzl's analysis was seeing the difference between institutional and cultural anti-Semitism. And this year we are asked to see the world with Herzl's eyes. This past summer, pride parades were held throughout most major Western cities. In Detroit, the organizer of the Dyke March caused a scene when a Jewish group showed up with a pride flag that had a Magin David superimposed on it. After internal deliberations, they announced that the Jewish group could not carry the flag and march because the Magin David, the Star of David, was upsetting and distressing to many of the marchers. You know, for the record, this is far from unusual. On college campuses today throughout North America, candidates for student government have been asked to take disloyalty oaths against the Jewish state and Jewish causes. That participation in even a birthright program is enough to have someone banned from sitting on a university student council committee. In other pride parades, including Toronto's, organizers have debated and banned Jewish symbols but the Detroit March takes the kind of turn that only real life could, in fact, script. As the Jewish group was told to lose the flag or lose their spot, they decide to lose the flag in order to keep their spot. And just then, a neo-Nazi group that showed up to, to protest the Dyke March sees their flag on the ground, and they gather around and urinate on it. And this is our plight, my friends. Anti-Semitism today targets Jews from both sides, from the right and the left. Many left-wing activists, institutions, and academics agree to a politer version of the lie of anti-Semitism. The Western governments, they say, are the source of the ills of the world, that the Israel lobby controls Western foreign policy, that Israel is the root cause of all the terrors of the Middle East, from the Iraq war to the Islamic State, 
they make Jews into demons with the power to manipulate and then destroy nations. Or as then Swedish foreign minister Margot Wallström once said, that the, 200, that the 2015 Islamist attacks on the kosher supermarket in Paris were the fault of Israeli occupiers in the West Bank. So why is this happening now? The Holocaust historian, Deborah Lipstadt, you probably remember her story. It was a movie with Rachel Wise called Denial. It says that anti-Semitism is like a virus deeply embedded into the body of humanity and where times of distress and weakness bring it out. And it is true that our world is under enormous stress and change. There's environmental change, which creates economic change, which creates migratory pressure, which stresses stable societies that are now faced with massive migrations. But I think that humans also have an inherent weakness, that we are seduced by simple and easy narratives, which as Nietzsche warned, that simple truths are complex lies. It's easier to believe that there's some worldwide mechanism controlling the banks and the press and the system than believing that your world is, is what it is because you are who you are. Not because of the Jews or the gays or the Asians or the immigrants, but your life is the way it is because of the way that you are. But for now, the question for us is where do we stand? Standing in front of community and asking this question would be entirely familiar to the Jews of Babylon and Berlin and every community that has been wiped out and erased in between them. But that it is facing the greatest diaspora in Jewish history is shocking to those who always believed that we were the lucky ones. That we would never have to ask or even think of this question. So who do you stand with? Is it with a Republican president who dog whistles to white nationalists but moves their embassy to Jerusalem? A president who celebrates in calling people anti-Semites but accuses Jews who don't support him of being un-American? Look how much I've done, he says. They should be more grateful, he complains. Or maybe a democratic or liberal leader who champions support and protection for minorities, but won't or can't understand the oppression of the Jews and the rationale for the state of Israel? Do you support a nationalist or conservative leader who provides refuge for anti-Semites but openly identifies with Israel's right to exist? Or liberal leaders who narrate excuses for terrorists, like the one who murdered a 92-year-old French Holocaust survivor in her apartment. What do you do? Who do you choose? And I say, you choose neither. We do not support racists or anti-Semites who may appear to be friendly or sympathetic to us because we are not court Jews. We will not support leftists or liberal leaders and movements that deny our history and foist conspiracy theories on us because we will not be self-abnegating Pollyannas either. Our call is to be, as Josephus wrote 2,000 years ago, the Jews, Josephus said, will be the teachers of humanity. 
And what we must now do is not cease to demand that our society adheres to conduct that is decent from all corners, from the government, from the arts, from the business world, and in doing so, we choose the middle. The middle is where the demand for a society of decency and respect is found. Where it is, where even before we begin to discuss which policies or which politicians we choose to support, we must first and foremost insist on decency. We demand a society that gives no quarter and cover to hate and lies. The middle demands honesty in our government because lives give, lies give cover to all kinds of dangerous things. And where the norms of decency erode, where people begin, begin to believe that they can say and do as they wish with little consequence, it gives room for lies and conspiracies like anti-Semitism to take hold and spread. Read your history. Calamity befalls when decency dies. And we are doomed. And people will come to speak of us the way that we speak about Babylon and Berlin if we don't address this right now. But I'm not here to frighten you. I'm here to answer the question that I began with. Why are you here? To the outside, it might appear that this is just a stop on your way to lunch. But inside, we know that's not true. I said that we live in two worlds, the outside and the inside, and I have spoken about the outside, and now we will talk about the inside. This past year, a highly regarded Catholic school with a large Jewish population called me with a problem. Their now-fired principal had organized the production of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Notoriously riddled with anti-Semitic tropes, the Jewish parents of the school were up in arms. In a Catholic school, school they screamed, you showed this? So they asked me to come and talk about anti-Semitism with the school. I told them that I would come to the school and talk, but I will not talk about anti-Semitism. But I will talk about Judaism. Because with body and mind, I have served and defended Jewish life for more than 30 years. But the fact that Jews have suffered for the price of being Jews is not the foundation of my Jewish identity. And the fight against our enemies is not the call of my Jewish life. Or put in another way, Jewish life is both oi and joy. But if we are only about oi, then you are only the product of what people have done to us. Five years ago, the Jewish population in Israel broke the six million mark. It was a solemn and powerful moment in the history of the state. Only 70 years ago, one out of every three alive, Jews alive were brutally murdered. And yet today we thrive as a community, a culture, and a nation. More people today speak Hebrew than all the Jews combined over the past 2,000 years. It says something about the Jews but it says more about the thing that makes Jews, and that's Judaism. And there is great joy in knowing that. If we are Jews who only know what to be against, but know little of what to be for, then what have we really done? Just to survive all the while that there is a message really waiting for us there? 
Because the foundational story of Judaism is when Abraham is told by God, Lech Lecha, leave your home and head to a place, to a land that I will show you, this land of promise. And the ancient rabbis, thousands of years ago, knew a problem with this story. Because we know that Abraham had actually left his home in Mesopotamia much earlier. He had left Mesopotamia with his mother and his father and his family much earlier in the story. So why then does God come and tell Abraham to leave home when he's obviously already left? And it seems to me that God was delivering a message to give, to give Abraham, Abraham the strength to complete the journey begun by those who had come before him. Because it's not enough to leave in life. You have to arrive. You are here on this morning because your ancestors, despite great temptation and even greater persecution, that they refused to let go of what they considered to be their most precious treasure. And you are the recipient of that faith. And on this morning, you were reminded of the commandment that you must gift it to others. For over 3,000 years, Judaism has given inspiration to the lost and strength to the weary and hope to the broken. And it radically placed us humans at the center of the story of life on earth in the hope that we would realize what we might be if we tried which of all the dreams ever dreamt in the world, it is the most radical of dreams. And it wasn't to build bigger buildings or bigger cities, not larger planes or larger guns. The Jewish dream was to build better humans. And Ayeka, God called out from the primordial mists, Ayeka, where are you? And today you've come here to say that I am here, that you are in this dream that this dream is mine and it will be my children's and it will be my children's children. Today you've come to Shul to say that I am here. Shana Tova, everyone. A sweet and blessed new year for us all.